All right, well, let's get rolling. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. Now, we started in on the Day of Atonement, the most holy day of the year on the Jewish calendar. And I want you guys to understand, I cannot stress that enough. When it gets to that time of the year, we'll point it out. I think last year, you guys, if you remember, Janet had pointed out that she'd asked the church, she said, this is a time of repentance. And that even though we're not Jewish and even though we don't celebrate it in that way, it's important that we at least, we should at least take this time and say, okay, Lord, what are we doing? And we talked about why that's important in this 10 days of awe and everything. So let's just backtrack. Let's just, just cover a few things, and then we're going to go. All right, so we've got the calendar uh, with the holidays here, right? We've got these festivals. You've got the spring ones. You've got the fall ones. Here's where we are, the Day of Atonement, okay? That's what we're talking about. It falls on the month of Tishri here in the seventh month, right? First day is the seventh month is the uh, Feast of Trumpets. The tenth day is the Day of Atonement. In between those things are called the Days of Awe. This is a time of repentance. You'll see the month of Elul here. That's the 30 days leading up to it where they're preparing for the harvest. All of this has to do with the farming practices. It's the harvest time. So it's the month of Elul preparing up to that Feast of Trumpets. Now it's when everything starts. We told you that this is going to be the rapture of the church. Still holding to that. You've got a 10-day window in here, and then you come to what's called Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. And as I said, it is the most holy day of the year. Now, at this point here, during this, they start harvesting. During this time is when they begin to reflect and say, okay, how did we do? It was the same thing that we should do. We should look back and say, okay, how have we done? Are we, did we reap a harvest? Was the harvest plentiful? Was the harvest weak? And then when we get to that Day of Atonement, I, we walked through this. I'm going to briefly talk about this quickly. But remember, in, the, in, in fact, at the very end of that, big guy, I've got the, uh, the tabernacle. Let's show that picture real quick. This is the outside. So you've got the inner courts, or excuse me, the inner courts, the outer courts here. And this is the uh, altar, the bronze altar, the brazen labor, and then they walk in there. Go ahead and go to the next one. And here's what happens. It was in here. You've got the holy place and the most holy place, or the holy of holies, whatever you want to call it. But the priests, every single day, multiple times a day, were doing sacrifices, they were washing, they were coming in here, and they were servicing the temple. They were mediating between man and God. But one day a year, the high priest would enter in to the Holy of Holies. One day a year, that day, the Day of Atonement, which is why it's the most holy day of the year. And so in order to do that, he would have to offer several sacrifices and several cleansings. They were called mikvahs. <coughs> Excuse me. He would cleanse himself. He would walk in there. He would, he would have two goats. <coughs> Pardon me. And he would sacrifice one goat for the people, and, he would, and then they would let one go, the Azazel. They would send him off. And so as he would do this, he would go in there. He would take the blood for himself and his family, go in there, perform. He'd get into the Holy of Holies. He'd sprinkle it on there. Then he would come back out. He'd have to cleanse again. He'd go, and now he'd make the sacrifice for the people. The two goats were presented before God. They would cast lots. One was chosen. The other one was essentially rejected. And so the one that was chosen, they would sacrifice it. He would walk in. He would ceremonially cleanse the blood. It was without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so he would shed all of these blood, all this blood. They would do that. He would do this part. Then Azazel, the other goat, it was called the scapegoat. He would lay his hands on that. And then the sins of Israel be placed upon that goat. And then that goat was driven out into the wilderness, never to return. Now, folklore has it that, you know, they would drive it and kick it off the goat to make sure it didn't follow you home, you know, type of thing. It's kind of like when you, when you take a puppy home that you find, and then, then you turn around, and he's back there. Yeah, this is a little more serious than that, because this thing had the whole sins of Israel. You don't want that sneaking back into camp, 
that would not be a good thing. They would freak out. Even if it was just ceremonially, they would take that very seriously. And so when you get in all this, and I know I'm going through this fast, but for time's sake, I don't want to go through everything again. There are several deductions that we can make based off the Day of Atonement from Leviticus chapter 16, which is what we worked through last week. Is First, the approach to God is limited. It is not all-encompassing. It's never been true that there are multiple ways to get to God. There is always one way, and on the law of Moses, that meant on the Day of Atonement, that only the high priest, and with the sacrifice required on the Day of Atonement, that he could enter into the Shekinah glory, which was the presence of God, on top of the Holy of Holies, or in the Holy of Holies, excuse me. It was one of those things where you couldn't just walk in there at any old time. One day a year. And if he missed any of those rituals at all, any of them, did any of them wrong, entering into the presence of God would immediately kill him. Because the presence of God cannot it manifest where there is sin present. Sin cannot exist there. So that's the first thing. Secondly, the atonement was always by blood. It wasn't just, I'm so sorry. It required blood sacrifice. Something had to die, had to be punished, had to receive the judgment on behalf of the individual. And God set up this system in which this could be passed from that individual. The third thing that was necessary that we can look at this is that a mediator was always required. And that mediator was the high priest. He was the one that stood in the gap between the nation of Israel and God. And he would act on their behalf. And he was literally putting his life on the line. Because again, if he didn't do it right, then it was all for naught. The fourth thing is that this mediator had to be human, obviously. okay, But he himself was a sinner, so he needed the protection that came from the blood. So he had to be atoned for before he could do the atoning. You guys following me on that? I mean, this was a major, major thing. So again, he had to sacrifice for himself, for his family, go through all of that ritual. If you make it through that, then you get to start all over, and you get to do it for the nation of Israel. Good times. The fifth thing is that there were two goats that were required for this. One was the blood sacrifice. The second one was the goat where all the sins were put on, and it was taken away. Before the sins could be taken away, the blood had to be applied. It's not in the other order. It always had to happen this way. The sixth thing is that the covering was for both known and unknown sins. In other words, intentional and unintentional sins. It wasn't just the fact that I screwed up. You know, shame on me. I made a mistake. I didn't realize what I was doing. It was also for those very things that you chose to do. You ever had a child choose to do something they knew not to do? If you haven't, I'll loan you one of mine, and you will find out, okay? But this mosaic system was based upon the problem that, or the premise that sin is a complete problem. It is a problem that has to be dealt with. And so it was always assumed to be present, and the Day of Atonement would take the presence of sin away. The seventh thing is that confession had to be made of sin. How was sin confessed? It's the high priest, as he was sacrificing an animal, would be confessing his sins. For the nation of Israel, when the sacrifice was made, they would confess the sins onto that second goat and send them out into the wilderness. There's a lot of stuff that's going on here, guys. This is all physical, but it all has a spiritual implication. And we're going to get into that today. Because the thing that I want you to understand is, remember, the Bible is not written to us. It was written down for us. And Paul, in a couple of places, says that these things were written down for our learning, for our understanding. The perfect example of this to understand, do you really think that God needed to test Abraham's faith to take Isaac up on the mountain because God didn't know? Oh, is he going to obey me or is he not? 
Of course not. All of these things were done as types and shadows so that when we look at them, we see what is happening. That's why these things were done. So it's not like this is the best system or anything like that. The reason God put this out is this is an exact picture of what Jesus has done. And you're going to see today as we get through this that Jesus is that atoning sacrifice and how he is our high priest. So in order to do that, we're going to lay a bit of a foundation, okay? We're going to start in Isaiah chapter 52. Have to start here. This is a messianic uh, prophecy as if there ever was one. The Jews completely deny this. In fact, they deny it so much that they don't even read it, right? So we're going to read it, and we're going to talk about it. Isaiah, we're going to start in Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 13. Here we go. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high, just as many were astonished at you. So his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Okay, remember that word sprinkle, okay? What did the high priest do when he went into the thing? He sprinkled the blood seven times. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form of comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led a, as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see his lab the labor of his soul and be satisfied. For by his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquity. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressor, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. These verses here, all of this, guys, clearly lays out a concept of substitution. That somebody is going to stand in the gap and be the substitutionary atonement and die on behalf of Israel. This is what Isaiah is talking about. So we see this thing going on. We see what's happening here. Now, we call this in the theological world penal substitutionary atonement. In other words, there's a finality there is somebody that's going to die on, on our behalf. And this is where Jesus steps into the gap here. And the Father said it pleased him to put this on him. But you see the word sprinkle. You see the word smitten. You see the word taking away. You see that it put on him to pull the transgressions away. I mean, you see the same thing. Now think about this high priest role and the sacrifice and everything that the Day of Atonement was put in here. 
because it all lays out very clearly of what Jesus was doing. And this is laid out hundreds of years before Jesus is even born. But when we look at these things and see all of these, I mean, we could spend forever on this. There's promises made in here that one person is going to come in and for the first time, all of these sacrifices they made for all this year, now we realize this is a person that's going to happen. It's not just an animal. A person is going to do this. And all of a sudden, we've got, we've got that our griefs are going to be taken away. He's going to carry our sorrows. He, he's going to become stricken. He was smitten by God. He's wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. I mean, we could spend all day here. You've got a wound, which is an outside sore. You've got a bruise, which is an inside sore. And all of it's taken care of. All of it. And then it says, by his stripes we are healed. Now, at one point in my life, I was sitting here thinking, I'm like, yeah, he's talking about spiritual healing. We've been forgiven. And then someone challenged me to go look at the Hebrew. And you know what I found out when I went and did that? That's not just what it's talking about. It is this physical ailment, this, this healing of our bodies that Isaiah is talking about, that Janet is teaching on Sunday mornings. No coincidence, I know. But she does this all the time. She's always preaching my sermon before I get a chance to. I'm trying to try to get a week ahead of her one of these days. But, but, but I mean, the bottom line is, guys, there's all of these things that were done by substitution. He took all of our punishment, all of our pain. And this concept deals with the atonement through, especially in those last three verses, that the carrying and the bearing of iniquity corresponds with the second goat that is taken away. He's sent away, he's into the wilderness. The wilderness was the land of the demons, if you will. The goat, Azazel, was considered a demon god. It was the goat demon. That's what they called it. And they would go out into his playground. Why? Because sin does not belong in the people of God, in the camp of God. And that is exactly what the nation of Israel was. They were the example of who God was to the world. And sin did not belong there. Sin had to be gotten, be gotten out of the camp. So the offering for sin is given and the bearing of iniquities and is all done through a substitutionary means. Now I know I threw out those big words, penal substitutionary atonement. The only reason I'm throwing it out there that there are some that have now denied the fact that God, it was God's will that this would happen to Jesus, that God did this instead of man doing it. Okay? We get off into some wanky stuff. But let's jump into Isaiah chapter 49. Starting in verse 5, and now the Lord says, Who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhor, to the servants of the rulers, kings shall see and arise, and princes also shall worship, because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you a, as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate things. Now, You've got this messianic program going on. And this, again, harkens back to this day of atonement concept that's happening. You've got the initial com commission that the Messiah is going to restore Israel. To bring them to the glory that they should have been. The second thing here that is added to the commission, and this is what throws uh, the Israelites for a loop, is that he's going to also become a light to the Gentiles. Now, so you, me, all of us, we're Gentiles. 
We're not Jews. We're Gentiles. There is a difference. We're all one in the body of Christ, but we are Gentiles. And to an Israelite mind, the Gentiles are the ones that they were supposed to stay away from, to not deal with, to not be around. They should not be anywhere near this. So the idea that this is even possible is foreign to them. But it's because of this verse that Peter gets scolded later on because he was supposed to be going to the Gentiles. Don't call something unclean that I've called clean in that vision in Acts chapter 10. The third thing here is that initially the servant's going to be rejected by the people of Israel. And because of this, this is why he's going to be the light to the Gentiles, this Messiah figure, whoever that happens to be. The fourth thing here is kind of laid out, but it's, it's that this Messiah, in the end of it all, is going to be lifted up and exalted. And the last thing that you can see here is that he will become a covenant of the people and will, again, restore Israel. Once again, you've got this pattern of events. Now, let's put these two passages together. The first thing that we see is that the Messiah is going to be rejected by his own people. And because of that, he's going to the Gentiles. Secondly, is that the Messiah will die as the final day of atonement sacrifice. The last one, because another one will never need to be made. The third thing here is that he's going to be, bear the sins of all believers. And while he's, his blood is shed for the world, only those who believe in him will have their sins bore by him. There's a difference there. Not believe that he was, or that he existed, or that he was a figure in history, but believe in him. In other words, what do we call that? Born again, salvation. You have rejected the world and made Jesus your Messiah by confessing with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That's how we do that. The fourth thing is that for a period of time, because of Israel's rejection of him, he's going to be this light to the Gentiles. We see these two passages coming together. The fifth thing is that after this time, that, the, that he's the light to the Gentiles, that he will again be accepted by his own people. They're going to look at him. They're going to say, okay, we get it. And the sixth thing is after this happens, this is when we get to the setting up of his kingdom what we call the thousand-year reign, the messianic kingdom, okay? There's a lot of things going on here, but what you need to understand, and I made a comment to this, and I'm going to expand on this. Isaiah 52 and 53 is not read in the nation of Israel by the Jewish people. And I may have told you this story before, but I'm going to tell you again. Hal Lindsey, you guys heard of him? He was a campus crusade director on UCLA's campus. There was a giant football player. He was a lineman for UCLA. You don't become a lineman for UCLA by being small, okay? He's a big man. He was a Jewish man. I don't remember his name, but this was back in the 70s, I believe. And so he was there, and he was reaching out to these people, and here's this Jewish man, gets invited to the Campus Crusade thing. And so he goes, and he begins reading the very passage, Isaiah 52 and 53, that we just read. And this Jewish man gets very upset, um, which is not something you typically want to do, is make a lineman for UCLA angry. Okay? Bad things can happen when you do that. He said, you are making this up. This is not the Bible. You Christians have put that in there. So how, being confident and knowing what he, what he was doing, he says, why don't you go home and read it out of your Tanakh, your Bible? He's like, well, that's just fine. I'll go do that because it's not there. So he goes home, and what does he do? He opens up to Isaiah 52, and he's like, huh, well, what do you know? It is there. So he didn't know what to do with that, so he went to his rabbi. His rabbi went and read it, and he's like, huh. What do you know? That is there. And so the guy says, he's like, you know, this sounds an awful lot like Jesus. The rabbi's response is like, you know, you're right. It does sound an awful lot like Jesus. But it can't be him because we don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. And that's where it left. This UCLA football man came to Christ 
thank God, or how it may, may never have written the books that he wrote, okay? You know, but, but I mean, here's the thing, guys. They rejected him. They're still rejecting him. There's a reason you and I are here today is because that light has come to us. And that's the whole thing. But the idea here all begins, all goes all the way back to this, this day of atonement sacrifice and what is taking place because Jesus is going to fulfill this. And you'll see this here in a moment. Now, when we jump into like one, Psalm 110 and verse 4, it says, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek or Melchizedek, depending on how you want to say it. I'm going to say Melchizedek because I get corrected often and they're wrong. Okay? Just so you know. But... This is where we're going today, guys. I, I said all of that to get to this point. Is because when we look at the Day of Atonement, who was the key figure in this? It's the high priest. Everything revolved around him. What happens if the high priest screws up? He dies, right? What if he didn't finish? There is no bullpen. There's not high priest number two. You have this day and this day alone to get this done. So... They don't have high priest in waiting, anything like that. So there's a problem here. So it's got to be done perfectly. And the book of Hebrew expands the idea because you and I have a great high priest. These are not just words that are put out there or that are cute saying, because I know many of us at one point or another has said to somebody, Jesus is our great high priest, and never given one thought to what that even means. We just say stuff. We get diarrhea of the mouth as Christians, okay? We just start blabbing stuff out and saying whatever you want. I had a friend of mine at one point that used to do street ministry, okay? And I love this guy dearly. But he would use so much Christian lingo, and some of our Christian lingo is not pleasant, like being washed in the blood. He'd walk up to a stranger and says, have you been washed in the blood? The reaction was exactly what you would expect it to be. Because you don't know what that means. Because normal people don't talk like that. Have you ever gone to a Christian thing? Most people in the world hang out or have a good time. What do Christians do? We fellowship, right? We can't use any word but fellowship, you know? So you invite people to say, hey, we're going to have a time of fellowship. Well, what is that? I don't know that I want to go to that. I mean, it's just stuff like that. But this idea of the great high priest, the book of Hebrews is laying this out. First of all, catching the context, who is the book of Hebrews written to? The Hebrews. That's the Israelites. Keep that in mind. All right, let's start. Chapter 4, verse 14. I know you've quoted this before. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, again, we have a high priest. He's a great high priest. Okay, so he's good at what he does. He's the great high priest who's passed through heavens. Who is it? It's Jesus. That's what it says. Our high priest is where? In heaven. Okay, Aaron and every other high priest could enter into the presence of God, but they would ultimately have to leave. There was a ticking clock. You had a certain amount of time. You performed your job and you left. They did not live perpetually in the presence of God. Our great high priest is in heaven. This is a better position, right? To be constantly in the presence of God for any high priest would be a better position. You pick anybody. Would you choose to be in the presence of God or not in the presence of God? Think about in the Old Testament. What was the representation of the presence of God? The Ark of the Covenant, right? The mercy seat was the throne. 
Moses getting ready to go in the land, and they're sitting there carrying the ark, and he says, I'll go, but you're coming with me, talking to God, because if you're not going, then I'm not going. That's how much it meant to them. So the opportunity to have this would be unfathomable to them. That's all they wanted. They wanted the presence of God with them. Why did they fight for that ark all the time when the Philistines stole it? They wanted it back, because this, to them, is the presence of God. And so here it is. We have a great high priest who is in a better position. But even more so than that, he sympathizes with us. Now imagine that. Why does he sympathize with us? Because he was tempted in every way, just like we are. But he never sinned. He got it right. So because of this, we can boldly enter into the throne room and find grace in our time of need. What is the throne room? The Holy of Holies. That was where the throne of God was. So what does he just tell us? Our great high priest is there, but now we can walk into that place. There only one man could, but because of this work, okay? We're just getting started. Stay with me. So we have the better position of the high priest, but we also have the better high priest. When we look at this, there's a prerequisite for this priesthood, okay? We're going to start in Hebrews chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It says, For every high priest taken from among men, is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. Okay, now leave that up there, don't take that down. As you look at this, first of all, we see that there were four prerequisites, right? One, had to be a man. The high priest had to be a man. There was no other alternative, obviously. But the second thing is he had to function in some sort of a priestly order. When we talk about the order, it comes the lineage. And what was that, the lineage? The Aaron, Moses' brother. The second part of this is that when we look at it, he had to be compassionate. Why was he compassionate? Because he himself had faults. He had flaws. And so because of that, he could sympathize for the people because he was screwing up just the same way they did. But ultimately, the fourth one is that they had to be called of God for this. Man didn't just choose them. God chose them for this role. Okay? This goes for every role in the body of Christ. You do not promote yourself God brings that promotion. When you attempt to promote yourself or put yourself into an office where you do not belong, bad things happen. Okay? I'll leave that at that. Now, then we get to the next part of this, when we see the Messiah coming into the picture here in verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, he being the Father, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Begotten means chosen. I have chosen you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And we just read that, right? Psalm 110. All right. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Called by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. The writer of Hebrews is trying to hammer a point home because we see this order of Melchizedek thing laid out. 
Now, there are four things about this Messiah here, about Jesus. He was divinely appointed, right? I have begotten you. I have chosen you. So God chose him. But also, what was one of the prerequisites? You had to be human. He was human, right? Was he compassionate? Yeah, we read that in a previous chapter because he was tempted in all ways, yet without sin. So he separated himself from the other high priest, okay? But he also functioned as a priest from the order of Melchizedek. Now, I know many of us have read this a hundred times, and we've never asked the question is, what is the order of Melchizedek? Like, why is that important, and what difference does it make? But he's making a distinction here. Because the high priest comes from the order of Aaron all the way through from Moses on. From that moment on, you see that. But he doesn't say that about Jesus. He says the order of Melchizedek. So who is Melchizedek? We're going to stay in the book of Hebrews. Okay? We're going to jump to chapter 7 and verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now, this writer, I'm going to say it's Paul. I assume that it's Paul. Most people think it's Paul. It sure sounds like Paul. But if it wasn't Paul, I feel sorry for whoever wrote it because he's not getting enough credit. He did a great job. Okay. The first similarity here is that Melchizedek was both priest and king. Now, this was unheard of because they had distinct offices. You were a priest or a king. Anytime those two things try to intertwine, bad things happen. Read your Old Testament. It was never a good thing. But here, what do we know about Jesus? That he was both a priest and a king, right? He acts as the priest. He started off as a prophet. At the time of his death, he steps into the priesthood, and eventually he's going to be crowned king of kings. You guys see how that's going to work? Okay. Second, is that Melchizedek's priesthood is issued in blessing, and the priesthood of Jesus is issued in blessing. In other words, it was put upon him, and there was a blessing with that. The third similarity is that tithes were given to him, okay? Things were given to Jesus. The fourth thing is that an independent high priest, his priesthood did not depend on genealogy. Now, this is unheard of, again, to them, but you think about that. It, Melchizedek here is, is, doesn't give out his genealogy, doesn't talk anything of that. He just was. He was a king of Salem, Okay? Another thing is that it was a timeless. There is no record of a beginning or end of Melchizedek's priesthood, nor of his life. In fact, it tells us very little about him in general. We don't know anything about this man specifically other than what it says in the Old Testament when Abraham goes to him, and then also what it says in the book of Hebrews. Now, there will some that will argue that Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate form of Jesus, that he was Jesus in the flesh. I disagree with that. He was a human being. Remember, things are types and shadows laid out as pictures. Hebrews is telling us exactly. The genealogy isn't given. No beginning, no end, no calling, nothing like that. He just was. And there was something significant about that because he was all-inclusive. He ministered to all. The Levitical priesthood only ministered to the Israelites. But what did Jesus do? He ministers to all. He's stepping in for all people. And that is the difference. Now, when we look at this order of Melchizedek, what does it mean? We can see who he was. He was this king of Salem. Abraham came and gave a tenth of his spoils to him. That tithing concept is laid out there and, and all of that. But he had no beginning and no end as far as the genealogy is concerned. And again, that's a big deal to the Hebrews. But what does this order mean? 
because it is laying out that it is superior to the order of Aaron. And so first here is shown in respect to Abraham in verse 4. It says, Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And he indeed, those, and indeed those who are of the sons of Levi, who received the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren. Though they have some from the loins of Abraham, have come from the loins of Abraham, but he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witness that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now this is can be confusing, so let's talk about this for a minute. Because he's talking about how great Melchizedek was, that even Abraham, who's the first Israelite? Abraham, right? Genesis 10, Tower of Babel. Genesis 11, Abraham, I need you to go to a land that I will show you. You'll be the father of many nations, so on and so on and so on. He was the first one. He's considered the patriarch of the Jewish people. So this is a big deal. And yet Abraham humbled himself before this king and high priest and paid tithes to him. They're making a big deal out of this. And it says, those who are the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, which is from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. In other words, Levi was the son of Abraham, and then from everybody there, that's where the line of the high priest come from. They're commanded to receive tithes. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them, referring to Melchizedek, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. What promises? The promises that God had made to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant, that you will be a father of many nations, okay? You got that. Then it says, beyond the contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Who is the lesser? The line of Levi is blessed because of what Melchizedek did. It says, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witness. And this is where it gets interesting. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. How did he do that? It says because he was in the loins of his father when Melchizedek paid him. In other words, he's of that line. And in a way, he was praying tithes to Melchizedek. The lesser is always paying the greater here. Okay? So you see this going on. Who is this order of Melchizedek? It's superior. Because they, which is all they ever talk about, they're trying to figure out who the Levites are and all that other stuff, is actually underneath Melchizedek as far as that order goes. This is a lot higher rated. And so sooner or later, a high priest would die and would have to be replaced. But in the case of Melchizedek, there's no record of his death. So you see how this is going? It's showing disrespect to Levi, certainly, but that this Melchizedek line is superior. This order of Melchizedek is superior to the order of Aaron. And Jesus being a priest after the order of Melchizedek is therefore a better high priest, or we could say a greater high priest. You guys see how that works. You see what, what the writer here is trying to get us. You have the old priesthood that everybody knows and loves being compared to this new one that in a sense is being started up again because Jesus comes from that order. And this is where we get to the idea that you and I have a better covenant. All right, Chapter 8, verse 1. Now, this is the main point of the things that we are saying. That means we should listen up at this point. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, 
a minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also a mediator of a better covenant, which has established on better promises. Let's pause there for a moment. Let's talk about the main point. This is the point that they're trying to hammer home. Our high priest is not on earth, but seated at the right hand of God. Stop there for a minute. How can he do that? Well, think about it. He's after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a priest, but he was also a king. Jesus fits that mold. You have the authority going on. The high priest did not have any authority to rule over the people. He was simply a mediator between God. But Melchizedek did, as does Jesus. Now, he says he's a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected, and not man. In other words, what are we talking about? The tabernacle that's in heaven. How do we know what that looks like? Because Moses built one exactly like the one that he saw, which is what it says in, in verse uh, 5. It says, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. Okay? He said, the priest, he said, there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow. In other words, it's just, it's a picture of it, but it's not the actual thing. But inasmuch that he's obtained a more excellent ministry, because he's a mediator of a better covenant which is established on better promises. I know that's been quoted a couple of million times in your life, but what does that even mean? What is the covenant? Why is it better? And why are the promises better? Let's get into verse 7. If that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because the finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. And that, he says, a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. He's making a comparison. He's quoting out of Jeremiah chapter 31. Is that this prophecy that is going out and saying, you know, I, I, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and house of Judah. They're separated at that time. This covenant was made with them or on behalf of them by God. But it says this new covenant has made the first one obsolete. Why? Because it wasn't faultless. In other words, it had the opportunity to be broken. You're dependent upon the ability of man to keep it, and therefore it can be broken. But this new one, not so much. So this high priest who is given because of this is able to mediate on our behalf in this new covenant that you guys have heard of. When we talk about New Testament, that's what that's referring to. And then in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 1, it says that we have a better sanctuary. Now watch this. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinance of divine service and of the earthly sanctuary. What is that talking about? The tabernacle. 
For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant, overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat of these things that we cannot speak in detail. Now let's pause there for a moment. All right. The first covenant had ordinance, the service of this earthly sanctuary. It says a tabernacle was prepared. The first part had the lampstand, the table of showbread, right? And it was called the sanctuary. Let's go back to that picture. This is what we're talking about here, guys. Right here, the holy place. This was service. This is what it was. This is what they had. And then it talks about but the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, is behind the second veil had the golden censer, the Ark of the Covenant, overlaid with gold. But in it had three things. It had manna. It had Aaron's rod that they used when they were uh, escaping Egypt. And it was budded. It had life on it. And that the tablets of the covenant or the Ten Commandments. So what do those three things represent? Manna represents God's provision. The staff represents God's power. I mean, here's a stick. You ever cut a stick? It doesn't bud. Stan, go, that one that hit you yesterday. Go see if there's any of leaves popping up on it. No? Okay. You'll duck next time. Won't mouth off to Janet again. And then the last thing was the Ten Commandments, which was God's ways of doing things, His law, His commandments. I mean, you guys, this all things are pointed up that, that it's, it's all a overshadowing thing that's happening. Verse 6, now when these things had best prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, the holy place, performing the services. But in the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sin committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to conscience. Concerned only with foods and drinks, various washing and fleshly ordinance imposed until the time of reformation. So he's talking about this priesthood that could go in there, but he couldn't go without blood. He had to. This is all going back to Leviticus 16. This is all stuff that we talked about last week. This is what he's talking about. He's laying out. This is what they had to do. But he's laying out a picture here. This wasn't enough. More had to be done. Then it gets into verse 11. It says, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. What's he talking about? The tabernacle in heaven. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Let's pause there for a minute. Now, he didn't enter into that, high, uh, that holy place with the blood of some animal or anything like that. It was with his own blood. It had to be perfect, right? Sinless. That's why that worked. So it's pointing the picture. He's the high priest that made the perfect offering, but he was also the perfect offerer as that high priest. But 
Here it says, it sanctifies for the purifying of your flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through spirit offered without spot, cleanse your conscience from dead works and serving the living God? There was a one-time offering that was given once and for all. This great high priest stepped into the most holy place and offered himself. And this is what we have today, is that the ability, this again, we're going to the throne room of grace. Think about this, guys. It all points to this. And for this reason, verse 15, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. This is all we're talking about, eternal redemption. The promises here. For where there is a testament, there must also a necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Now let me ask you guys something. When they were sprinkling the blood on the altar, in the tabernacle, and all these other places, what was being purified? Those items. It wasn't purifying the people. It was atoning for them. It was covering it. But they weren't purifying. They were not able to just walk into the presence of God. But it says that Jesus died for all. His blood purified for all. Okay, verse 23. Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. What was that better sacrifice? Death of Jesus. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another, he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this a judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. I mean, you guys, you guys are getting the picture, I hope. All of these things, these are not just cute words. It is painting the picture that Jesus is our great high priest. The fulfillment of the day of atonement. Chapter 10, verse 1, it says, The law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Remember, what was being purified? It was not the people. It was the items, their sins. We read in Leviticus 16, that blood purified those items, and those items need to be purified because of the sins of the people. Verse 5, therefore when he came into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. The volume of the book, what's he talking about? The Old Testament. What was written about him? Everything. 
All of these things they're acting out as the high priest in the Day of Atonement is all about him, what he's about to do. Verse 8, previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings, and offerings for sin you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second, referring to covenants. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every high priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Let's stop. Now, what has been sanctified? Those who believe in Him. For once, those sins are now washed. We don't have to have consciousness of it. While they were atoned for, while they were covered for, they never stopped thinking about what was the reminder of their sins. The Day of Atonement. The sacrifices that were made daily, every year when they had to come in for the nation of Israel. But now, this great high priest has stepped in, being the perfect offerer and the perfect offering. He didn't have to make a sacrifice for himself. He made himself the sacrifice. And now you and I, who are waiting anxiously for his second coming, are made whole, made pure by that blood of Jesus. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. That is you and me, and anybody else who gives their life to Christ. Verse 15, but the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. In other words, the work has been done. Now, did Jesus... When it says here, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. That doesn't mean he forgot. It means he chooses not to remember. There's a big difference there. Verse 19, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Do you guys see how Jesus was the picture of the tabernacle on the day of atonement was all about him? What was the veil? His flesh. What kept them from going into the presence of God. That veil. But why was it there? It was to protect them. It wasn't that God didn't want to be there. It wasn't like God didn't say, I don't want you around me. It was that he was doing everything necessary so that at least he could keep them covered until that day came where Jesus comes into the earth. And because of this, it says, having boldness to enter the holiest 
What is the holiest? That most holy place to where the presence of God is because we are no longer seared by the consciousness of sin because that one sacrifice, that blood of Jesus was poured out for us and we have now been sprinkled just like the high priest did. He sprinkled everything, sanctifying them. We're sanctified. Then it says that you've been washed in the water. What is he talking about? The mikvahs. They were doing that. They were washing and cleansing themselves ceremonially. We have been done that by the work of Jesus. All of this is done for us. That this evil consciousness and all of this is now gone. We don't have to worry about that. We enter boldly into the throne room of grace. Do you see it? But we spend so much time worried about, I didn't do this right or I didn't do this wrong. God, you can't use me because of this. Or God, I'm so sorry, I'm useless, I'm dead. No, you have been bought with a price and that redemption has been paid. The day of atonement has been completed in that sense. And now we can walk in through that veil. When it was torn, that's the same picture as the body of Christ being torn apart for our behalf. Because now there is no longer a separation between man and God because we have a great high priest who mediates on our behalf now. Do you guys see this? Do you see how powerful this is? When Jesus said, the whole of the book is written about me, he wasn't just using cute language. It was all about him. They've been doing this for thousands of years. Still do it today. In some sense, it's weird. Like they sacrifice chickens now. and It's, it's completely weird. It's, I don't know. <laughs> don't ask me. That's what they do. Goats are expensive. I don't know. But the bottom line here is, guys, not only was he that blood sacrifice, but he was the one that took the sins. Where did they crucify Jesus? Outside the camp. They took him away. And it says God placed the sins of the world upon him. I mean, again, please tell me you guys are getting this picture. I mean, this is powerful. This is it. There's nothing greater than when you realize who you are in Christ and why we do what we do. Because it goes beyond just, oh, good, I'm saved. I am comfortable in that. It's now, let's get busy. When we lay hands on the sick, they recover. That's what the Bible says. That is the testament. That the death of the testator now puts this into effect. You ever had a will? You ever known somebody had a will? It's useless till they die. Right? It just sits there. It has no authority and no power. It can be changed at any point in time. But once that person dies, it can no longer be changed. And now it's enacted. And whatever the desires of that individual was is now going to be put into place. Right? What were the desires of the Father? That we would go into all the world and preach the gospel. That we lay hands on the sick and they would recover. That all of these things that are promises of God, that now are for us to do, we should be entering boldly. It should raise your confidence level a little bit, folks. It should make you excited about the things of God. When you realize that all of what the book of Hebrews is talking about is for you and for me. I mean, this is powerful. And so when we do this, when we look at this, we see Passovers fulfilled by the death of the Messiah. You see the unleavened bread fulfilled because he was the sinless. There was no sin in him. He was the first fruit offering which fulfilled by the resurrection of Jesus. You see Passover fulfilled as the birth of the church and the giving of the Holy Spirit. You see the Feast of Trumpets that will be fulfilled at the rapture of the church. And then the Day of Atonement, just so you know what it is, because we're going to get into this next week, going into the last one, is the beginning of the Great Tribulation. The time of Jacob's trouble, the time that you and I, if we're watching and waiting and believe God, will be gone and whisked away and we'll be sitting in a lot better place because of that. God is good, amen? amen. You guys, I'm telling you, when, when, when I, you know, I joked earlier about this guy that was going to, you need to be washed in the blood. We know what they mean, right? But that is not just cute language. That's scripture. 
Like, don't just read something. Don't just assume you know what it means. Dig into it because it's always so much more powerful when you understand what it is that our great high priest from the order of Melchizedek, both king and priest, can stand in the presence of God. And because of that, we can walk in any time we want.